In chapter 14, we actually did the first half of chapter 15 last week, but before that, in chapter 14, we saw a couple really great examples of faith, right? We saw the feeding of the 5,000, where Jesus asked the disciples to do the impossible. You feed them. You take care of their needs. And, uh, and they had to step out in obedience, even though they didn't have all the detail. We also saw Peter calling out to the Lord, if that's you, call me to come out to you on the water. And so he takes a step of faith there as well. Um, the second half of chapter 15, we also get some great pictures of what faith looks like. And in fact, one of them is very similar, the feeding of the 4,000. Um, but I think it's good for us to not only just look at faith in general, why it's important, what it looks like, but what causes our faith to grow? And, and I, we've got a great example here in the second half of chapter 15. And I think it, as we look at the great example, there's also the example of the disciples again that kind of shows us dealing with some of our own doubts, dealing with some of our, which is okay, that's normal, that's part of our, our walk and part of our growth in the Lord. Uh, but yeah, there's some great examples of Strong, healthy, growing faith, and also examples of some doubt. So we're going to be starting in verse 21 of chapter 15. But let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to grow in faith. We want to know you. We want to trust you. And we want our faith to continue to grow and honor who you are and that we would be people that stand upon your promises. We give you this day, we pray that you'd teach us through your word, Holy Spirit, that you would have your way, and that we would know you better as we leave here today. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So, starting in verse 21 of chapter 15, it says, Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from the region of and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord, but even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from the master's table. And then Jesus answered her and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed that very hour. This is another one of those stories I find humorous. Because Jesus does not respond or act the way we expect Jesus to act. And what we see even in the other Gospels and in this Gospel, that he's doing something very different here. And, and it really starts off by where he goes to. So he leaves Galilee where he's been doing ministry. It's kind of been the base of operations for quite a while. And he goes to the area of Tyre and Sidon, uh, which is not a small trip. It's about 50 miles from where he was at in Galilee. And, and again, remember, this is walking. Walking 50 miles. 
They're not hopping on the bus. They're not jumping in the you know, disciple wagon and heading there. So it's, it's a trip for them to, to go there. And they're going to an area that is predominantly Gentile. The area of Galilee was kind of a mix. It had uh, probably about 50-50 of Gentiles and Israelites in that area. But they're going to a place where there's very few uh, Israelites and it's predominantly Gentiles. Um, interesting, the historian Josephus records about that area at this same time that they were all aligned with Rome. And they saw Israel as being a real problem. That Israel was the thorn that was, you know, in the saddle and that was causing trouble. And every time it, that Israelites traveled through that area, they were in danger uh, because there was such animosity between the area of Tyre and Sidon and Israel. So Jesus is going to a place 50 miles away where he's probably not going to be welcome. I mean, if any Israelite was in danger, a rabbi that's stirring up trouble would probably not be really welcome. But this is a very deliberate trip. He makes this trip for a very specific reason. And again, it's not casual. But his interaction while he's there with this woman doesn't seem to line up with what we know about Jesus, right? And the hard part is, is we don't know his tone. We don't know whether he's saying these things to kind of coax her or draw her out. We're not there. But he is doing it for a reason. Um, one of the other interesting things is that in speaking about this woman, Matthew writing the gospel makes a point that she is from Canaan. She is a Canaanite. And some people go, well, this kind of shows that, uh, you know, there was still breaking down people by their race. And well, that, that's true. Um, but that, I don't know if that's what's happening here. I actually think that it's, it's a, just a little bit humorous because the Canaanites were the age-old enemy of Israel. It was their land. God had driven them out to bring Israel into the promised land. And, and they were always at odds with the remnants of the Canaanites. And now here, all these generations later, is a Canaanite woman chasing after Israel's Messiah, begging him for mercy. I love it. Even if that's not what Matthew meant, I love that, right? That God is able to take enemies of old and draw them together in Jesus Christ. Verse 22, she cries out, Have mercy on me, O son of David. Publicly calling him the Messiah by calling him the son of David. Obviously, she's heard about Jesus. Though she's not of Israel, she wasn't raised in the scriptures, she wasn't taught the things of the coming Messiah, she has heard about Jesus. And she's not seeking Jesus for herself, but for her daughter. It says that her daughter was severely demon-possessed, which is weird to me. Because how do you have somebody that's mildly demon-possessed? Like, you just take antibiotics for that? Or that's not her case, severely. I just think it's interesting. It probably means that she was incapacitated. That whatever her situation was, it wasn't just that she was erratic or that she was violent, but it was to the point of she was either completely out of control or that she was paralyzed. That it was an completely possible, impossible to manage. She, she was in her state. Um, now, looking at this woman, there's a lot of things that we could, we could bring out and, and point out, but to me, this to, is just 
first of all, a great picture of faith, which we'll see Jesus is the reason he brings all of this together to point out her faith. But I think it's also a great picture of prayer. You know, that as we're seeking the Lord, she's a pretty good example of, of how we are to seek him. That she doesn't wait for a convenient time. She doesn't wait for an invitation to submit her prayer request. Jesus is there and she rushes him, you know, and, and not demanding, not telling him what he should do, but he is her only hope. She is pursuing Jesus with all she has in desperation for an answer, right? And it first makes me question, why don't I pray like that? My prayers tend to be very casual or panicky. It's one or the other. It's like both sides. Either it's like super, hey, Jesus, what's up, man? Or it's like, help, you know, and there's not a lot in between, right? And, and she's a great balance because there's this desperation of, of the love of her daughter. It has her in this desperate place, and she will not be rejected, right? And Jesus' response, and verse 23 says, he answered not a word, She's crying out from a very humble place. Have mercy on me, son of David. She calls him Lord. And he answers not a word. Have you had those prayers? Right? You're praying. And it, it's not selfish. You're not trying to get something, gain something. Maybe it's completely for somebody else. And man, you are just crying out in desperation to the Lord. And he answers not a word. And you're in the Word, and nothing's standing out to you. You don't hear the Holy Spirit driving anything home. You're praying in the Spirit. You're speaking in tongues. You're doing everything you can. And He answers not a word. And we're like, Lord, what's wrong? What is going on here? Now, again, I think we find those times very discouraging. I know I do. And I'm very quick to give up. Again, looking at this situation with this woman makes me question a lot of things about how wimpy my prayer life is. Because though he answered her not a word, she doesn't, she doesn't get insulted by that hesitation. She isn't put off. She does, doesn't relent and go, well, he's not, she's not saying anything. She continues. She presses in even closer. And, and we get the idea from the disciples that she was really annoying, right? I mean, it, we can kind of picture it a couple ways. Like, she's just, like, in a very beautiful way seeking the Lord. But I think it was louder than that. Because I think it was enough to, that the disciples are like, could you do something about her, right? She's crying out and calling after us, um, and it's interesting because it says they urged him saying, send her away, for she cries out after us. They're not just being total jerks going, tell her to go away. It sounds like that. But they're also not being overly kind in what they're saying. Basically, the, probably a good way to translate it is what they're saying is, give her what she wants so she'll leave. They're not saying send her away empty-handed. But the easiest way to send her away is to give her what she's asking for, right? Um, and again, I, I like the disciples. I can relate with these guys. Um, and so he answers them, and it's like he answers them, but he's also saying it so she can hear it as well. So it's like a half answer to her as well. 
when he says, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of, of the house of Israel. Now, a simple point is, she's not from Israel. And again, that seems so unlike Jesus, right? Because we know he's healed the Roman centurion's servant. And we know he's healed and dealt with and, and ministered to other Gentiles. But here he says, she's not Jewish. And I kind of picture the disciples going, what? <laughs> Again, this answer, I think, he's doing this whole thing to draw her out a little bit more. He wants to display her faith. But it's got to be brought into the right light in order to do that, right? And I almost picture Jesus doing this a little bit, just a, maybe not a smile on his face, but a smile in his heart. He knows what he's doing, right? And I think afterwards, it would have been a funny story to retell, like, remember when he thought he was brushing off that Gentile, you know? And he had this whole plan, how cool that was. Um, and I also wonder if, if part of it wasn't for her. We don't know anything of her story. We don't know her backstory, where she came from, other than that she was of Canaan. Now, again, that was a group completely set at odds with Israel for generations and generations. Maybe she, she certainly was raised among her people to hate Israel. So it's possible she also did. And now she's brought to this humble place of seeking the Jewish Messiah. And again, I don't think Jesus is doing this to call her out or belittle her in any way at all, but possibly to show not only the beauty of her faith, but the beauty of repentance. Again, all that's conjecture. We don't know. But there's just some other possibilities that could be going on as far as why Jesus is saying these things and doing these things. And, and it, I love, again, that she is not detoured, uh, that she continues to seek desperately. And she's seeking the right person, right? Of all the people she could be seeking after for help, she has chosen the right one to seek help from. And so his half answer, his half acknowledgement of her, though he says it to the disciples, she hears it. Man, that is all she needs. And she comes and she worships before the Lord, and she says, Lord, help me. Now, again, there's, there's an importance to the order that she does these things. And she couldn't have known these. There's no way she knew this stuff, but she does it very naturally. And again, it, it points to, I think, our prayer life that the first thing she does is she worships. She just worships who he is. That he would even acknowledge her that much to say, she's a Gentile. And that's enough. That's all she needs. And she worships before him. Um, and after that, then she makes her request. Now, she doesn't know it, but this is right in line with the example Jesus gives us and gave the disciples in what we call the Lord's Prayer, Right? The very first thing of the Lord's prayer is, Our Father in heaven, hallowed or holy be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Worship. Lord, you alone are holy. You are worthy. I think too often we can treat God like the cosmic vending machine. That if we push the buttons in the right order, he must give us what we want. Sometimes faith is taught that way. Unfortunately, very often faith is taught that way. 
that it's an emotion that you work up and you build up and you drive out all of your doubt, and that forces God to give you what you want. It's not biblical at all. It's not the example we see in the Lord's Prayer, and it's not what we see here. To begin in a place of worship is to say, Lord, I yield everything to you. You are sovereign. You are wise. You know all things. But I will still make my request and leave it in your hands. Right? And her prayer is simple and honest. And those are my favorite ones. Lord, help. It's not long and drawn out. It's not, he has to answer if I speak enough words or I speak in King James or any of these things. Lord, help. And again, his response is strange. In verse 26, he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. <laughs> Did you just call me a dog? What? And, and honestly, the words he chose were specific. In that day, it was offensive. And again, I go, Lord, why did you do it like this? Because he could have said to give it to the neighbors. Or to, <laughs> he could have said, but he chose dogs. Israel referred to all Gentiles as dogs. And it was meant to be insulting. And it was meant to be degrading. That they were God's chosen and everyone else were dogs. Now the word they used, the Hebrew or the Greek word that they used, was referring to wild, mangy curs. Jesus softens that a little bit and refers to a domesticated household pet. But it's still a dog. <laughs> and it's still that word they would have understood was a reference to Gentiles. And it was an insulting one. But she's not detoured. Again, she could have been offended. She could have gotten upset. She could have gotten all bent out of shape. But instead, she plays off of what he says. Doesn't skip a beat and goes, yeah, but even the dogs in the house basically are blessed by their master. Yeah, I'm not going to argue with you. I'm a Gentile. I'm a Canaanite. I have been opposed to your people. My people have hated you guys all the way back in the day. But yet, I'm in your house, and I'll take crumbs from your table. Man, it's such a humble, honest place for her to be. And again, man, what a beautiful picture it, it is. And, and this is where Jesus breaks. Whatever this character that he's kind of been portraying or this act that he's been doing, putting on, it's this point where he breaks back into just Jesus that we know, right? And even the way he says it in verse 28, and then Jesus answered and said, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. The word, that phrase, O woman, it's a, word, it's a phrase of endearment. So he's, it's weird, right? So at first Jesus is like keeping her at a distance, but it's to get this response. And it's almost like Jesus is like, and that's what I wanted to hear right there. You know what? And it's for the disciples. It's for everybody that's there that he goes, man, that's it. Guys, that's what we've been waiting for. That's what I wanted you to hear. And it's awesome. It's a, this term of endearment. And, uh, and again, I believe it's to display her faith. After all these things that he's done, going to this place where 
they are not welcome. It's for her. Now, this is where I think it's important we understand how faith grows. Because again, this is a great example of it. It's a little bit different than what we think, but it's still a great example. Because her faith isn't going to grow, or doesn't grow, didn't grow, because of the miracle that happened to her daughter. It's easy to look at it that way and go, well, she sought Jesus. He answered. Her daughter was healed. Sure, her faith would grow. It's not really how it works. And I think we make that mistake a lot of times, thinking that if only I could see a real miracle, if I could see some great sign or wonder, if I could see the sea part before me, then I would never doubt again. If I could talk to an angel, then I'd never doubt again. And that is just not how we are wired. If you have any doubt about it, just read about the nation of Israel leaving Egypt. And they saw all of those signs and wonders. They saw all of the judgments upon Egypt. And they saw the Red Sea parted before them. And pretty much on the other side, they start arguing and decide that God is just leading them into the desert to kill them. And you're like, how could they do that? Because we would do the same thing. Signs and wonders and miracles do not cause our faith to grow. We're such shallow people that we were just, we could see the most amazing thing and right after we go, well, could have been a coincidence. Well, maybe it was this or maybe it was that or maybe I misunderstood the whole thing altogether. So what causes our faith to grow? Romans 10 tells us in verse 17, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That is the only way that faith grows, that we hear the word of God. We hear his truth, we hear his promises, and then we act upon them. Now, this is an ongoing process, and I think that's important we know too. We, don't, we will never arrive at a place in this life where we're like, I am full of faith. I, don't, I never have to worry about it again. I have arrived, right? It's an ongoing, maturing process. So when we first get saved, it's little things, right? We're like, well, I'm supposed to read the Bible. It says that God will, will kind of speak to me, and people tell me God will speak to me through the Bible. So we read the Bible, and sure enough, we find the Holy Spirit working in us, doing a change in our hearts and a change in our life. And then we, as we're taking it in more, we come across promises, and we're like, it says I should forgive, but I don't want to forgive that person. But because he has told me I'm going to, try and do it right so we forgive and we love when it's hard to love because we're told to love and we're kind to people that maybe are hard to be kind to and we find time and time again the more that we take in his word and we stand upon those promises we find he is faithful and his word is true and our faith grows right that's how it grows now this woman Again, it's a little different situation, but she has heard the word of God of who Jesus is. And she is stepping out to stand upon the promise of what she's heard about him. And by doing it, she finds that he is faithful. Even though it doesn't go down the way maybe we would have expected it to. Jesus holds her at a little bit of a distance. He's drawing her out. He wants to show her faith in a, in a different way. 
And as a result of it, man, we get to see this beautiful, strong faith, again, from a woman that did not grow up in the church. From a person that was not educated in the scriptures. And it's interesting to me, it's funny, I didn't go out seeking this, but over the last few weeks I've been watching these different podcasts and everything, and there's this cool thing, I may have mentioned this last week, I can't remember now, but there are these different people on these podcasts that have come to Jesus, and these are not Christian podcasts, and these are not Christian people raised in Christian homes. Some of them are super worldly, which is funny when they're like dropping F-bombs talking about how cool Jesus is, and you're like, well, I don't think that's okay, but... They weren't raised in church. They don't know. And their honesty is beautiful because they're talking about Jesus is amazing. This one woman who's been through all kinds of craziness and super worldly and top of success in a lot of ways, and she's like, I'm finding that forgiveness is amazing because I've received it for myself from Jesus, and now I'm showing it to others, and it's blowing my mind, right? They're hearing the word of God. They're stepping out to see if it's true. They're finding it true, right? This is how faith grows, and this is what this woman is such a great picture of, and again, I think the great picture of prayer that she's, again, she's not demanding. Sometimes we can be that way with God, you know, or maybe we give the report of how a prayer wasn't answered. Well, I thought God was going to do this, but he didn't, you know, and, and there's, there's kind of a demanding side to that. God, if you were really good, you would have done what I wanted. And she's not like that. She's not doing that. So again, I think there's this great balance of, of being undetoured in what she's requesting, but she is first worshiping and then letting him be the one to answer. And, uh, and I think the question that I found myself asking is, is, is what kind of response do I have when maybe I hear not a word from the Lord? Or maybe he responds to me in a way that I wasn't expecting. I think it says a lot about our faith in, in how our prayer life is, how we receive our answers, and and how our faith, or the, the stage of maturity that our faith is in. Again, it's not a bad thing. Even if it shows that I've got a small amount of faith, great. Then it just shows me I need to get more in the Word and step out more on His promises, that my faith might grow. That whatever He's going to do, it is going to be for our good. Just like this woman. It didn't seem like it at first, but man, it was for her good, and it was to show her as an example of faith. All right, verse 29. It says, Then Jesus departed from there, and skirted the Sea of Galilee, and went up on the mountain and sat there. And then a great multitude came to him, having with them the lame, blind, mute, maimed, and many others. And they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. And so the multitudes marveled, when they saw the mute speak, and the maimed made whole, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Now Jesus called to his disciples, called his disciples to himself, and said, I have compassion on the multitude, because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. 
And his disciples said to him, where could we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill such a great multitude? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few little fish. And so he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. And he took seven, the seven loaves and the fish and he gave thanks and broke them. And he gave them to the disciples and the disciples to the multitudes. So they all ate and were filled. And they took up seven large baskets of the fragments that were left. And now those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And he sent them away, he sent away the multitude, got into a boat, and came to the region of Magdala. Um, now after this meeting with the woman, and again, it amazes me that everything that Jesus did was for her, that one person. 50-mile walk going to that town where he was unwelcome, and it wasn't for anyone else. He didn't do anything else. He met with her, and he left. And I always picture the disciples going, we just got here, what? You know, and off they go again. And again, it's not a far journey. In fact, they go past the Sea of Galilee to the other side, to the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Um, and and I, I just can't help but wonder, you know, if it was the disciples that were maybe kind of wondering about Jesus' response to this Gentile woman, just wondering where Gentiles going to fall in the whole mix of God's plan. Because the G, the, now Jesus takes him to a place that, again, is primarily Gentile. The, this area that he leads them to um, is the area of Decapolis. Mark tells us that that's where they went. And, yeah, the vast majority of the people in that area were Gentiles. So when we see this multitude gather... If we get the idea that these are all Jewish people, I mean, some of them probably were, but most of them were Gentiles again. And so Jesus teaches them, and they spend three days with Jesus as he's healing all of their sick. And again, it's, it's amazing, the blind and the lame, and it mentions the maimed here. These are people that have been broken through whatever accident. They've been injured, lost limbs or whatever, and Jesus is making them whole. And the people are amazed. And I, I think one of the reasons it's important to keep in mind that this is primarily a Gentile group is because in verse 31 says, and they glorified the God of Israel. Again, the Gentiles were not interested in the things of Israel. They had a million other beliefs and cults and, you know, whether it was Roman or Greek or whatever or Old world, you know, but they see the things that Jesus is doing and they understand this is the God of Israel that's at work. And then Jesus decides to feed the multitude. Um, some people think or act like this is a retelling of the other feeding of the multitude, uh, which is not true at all. This is separate and there's a lot of things that make that clear. It's a different number of people, different number of fish and bread and baskets. It's in a completely different location. Again, uh, mostly Gentile in this case. And, um, and that these have continued with Jesus for three days. So whatever food they had is gone, including the, dis the disciples. And when Jesus asked them how much they have, it's a small amount. It's barely enough for one person to have a meal. Uh, so they were probably thinking it was time to go to town or something. Um, seven loaves and a few small fish. The part that stands out to me is why are the disciples so baffled by what Jesus is going to do? They've already seen it. 
right? And you almost picture, like, hey, how are we going to feed all these people? And the disciples are like, do that fish thing again, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, you multiplied all that, do that. And so as I thought about it, you know, why, why are they so like, well, I don't know, I'm not sure. And it shows me that the disciples are just like us. I mean, you think about how many times the Lord has come through for us. How many times we've prayed that desperate prayer and, and he is sometimes saved in the last moment, sometimes provided a, a huge amount. And I think it's a cool contrast between the feeding of the 5,000 and this feeding of the 4,000, because with the 5,000, it wasn't a desperate need. The disciples were like, send them to town, make them go get some food. And, and Jesus is like, no, let's, let's feed him right now. But it wasn't this desperate thing. This one's a little bit more desperate because everyone's out of food and Jesus is afraid they're going to faint on the way. And so it can, you know, I think that kind of categorizes how the Lord answers some of our prayers. They're not necessarily desperate prayers, but we've seen them answered. And we have other ones that are very desperate and he answers as well. But yet there's something in us that when the next trial comes along, we go, I don't know if it's going to work this time. Right? You know, instead of going, well, hey, Jesus, do that thing you did last time. <laughs> Having the confidence going, well, you fed the 5,000. This is a 1,000 less. You know, no problem. Instead, we're like, oh, I don't know. It's a big deal. Maybe I got myself into this mess. Maybe he's teaching me a lesson. Maybe we should have packed more food. Maybe we should have, you know, we come up with all the, we should have done this and that. Instead of just going, no, he is faithful. He might not answer the way I want him to, but he is going to answer. And he's going to answer the best way possible. Now, again, it's, it's the same setup. He takes what little they have. He gives thanks for it. He breaks it, gives it to the disciples. And then they go do the hard work. And it is hard work. Giving food out to, it's probably anywhere from eight to 10,000 people. And that's a very conservative number. We know it's 4,000 men. They've traveled as families, so we've got wives and children there as well. It's a massive group. And he's like, go feed those people. <laughs> That's a lot of work. But in the end, they come back with more than they started with. This time it's seven large baskets, more than enough for all of them. And, uh, and so there's the same kinds of things we saw in the feeding of, of the 5,000. But again, what I look at in this, if, we if we're talking about faith, another great example, right? They had to act on those things that they were doubtful about. Not that they were doubting Jesus, but they just didn't seem to believe that he was going to do it the same way again. And that doubt and that fear chokes out faith. Doesn't kill it. Doesn't destroy it. I've had a lot of people say, no, fear is the opposite of faith. And if you're acting in fear, you can't have any faith. I don't think that's true. I think we have fear and faith is stepping out in spite of it. And so instead of going, oh, I'm fearful about this, that means I can't ask God for anything because I'm not acting in faith. Nonsense. We have doubt. We have fear. But we refuse to let it control what we're going to seek God over, what we're going to step out and do if he's called us to do it. Right? We just drag it along with us. And that's how I picture my doubt and fear. It's just these things. They're like, come on, we're going to go to work. We're going to work for Jesus today, you know, and they just have to follow, right? That's stepping out in faith. But if I give into it, then it's going to choke out that fear. It's going to make the fear that I have start to shrink. Whereas when I step out in spite of it, 
And again, I find his promise is true. He is faithful. Now, again, I think it's important. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but as we're wrapping up here, I think it's important to, to make the point that stepping out in faith does not mean that he is going to do what I want. It doesn't mean that somehow through some secret mojo, he is indebted to me to do my will. That's not faith. That's treating him like the vending machine again. And there are those that are out there that say that, man, you will always be prosperous, you will always be healthy if you just have enough faith. That didn't work for any of the disciples. It certainly isn't going to work for us. And that's a, it's a sham. But honest faith, standing on his promises, or not trying to get the word of God to bend to my will. It's about me bending to his will. Prayer is not about overcoming his reluctance. It's not about making him do what I want. It's getting me in line with what he wants to do. And faith seeks him out in that way. The things that he has promised, I think you can break down all the promises of God into two categories. That he is good and that he wants to do good for us. And when we stand on those promises, then it doesn't really matter what the circumstances are. Though the storm rages, though we hear not a word, he is good. And he desires to do good for us. And when we step out on those types of promises, and faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, and our faith grows. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.